scripture reading is the gospel according to Matthew chapter 1, and we will read it again tonight when we come for the Christmas Eve service, Matthew 1. I'm just going to summarize most of this today, this morning. Notice how Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, begins this very first line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that statement at the very beginning runs through this whole list of names that you get to enjoy me reading tonight to you. But I won't read them now. But through this whole family lineage all the way down to Jesus coming. And then comes verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What I've just read and summarized out of Matthew 1 will actually help you to answer a question we will be left with at the end of the sermon. So now let's go to 2 Chronicles 36 as we begin to really wrap up our series. We've been doing this series in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Reclaim, revive, reform, return. And this is the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, and then we'll really finish the series tonight, and you'll see how it all brings Christmas together in a unique way. Josiah, a godly king, who followed the Lord as a young boy, it says, when he was 16, seeking the Lord, grows up and reigns till he's 39, and he tries and strives to bring all of God's people to follow the Lord, but the people are just not with him. And then Josiah dies at age 39. And you'll notice there's a quick procession of kings. There are four of them that are mentioned. These are sons. One's a brother. One's a grandchild, I believe. And they come very quick and short. Three months, 11 years. Three months, 11 years. The first king is Jehoahaz, his son, And he lasts three months. And then he's deposed by the king of Egypt and taken away. But then, verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the English translator's way to tell you that in the Hebrew, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. In fact, down at verse 8, the abominations that he did and what was found against him, they're recorded in other places. He was a pretty uh, especially uh, uh, not healthy hombre. Then verse 9, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And then verse seven, 11, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 11, uh, uh, 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, of Yahweh, his God. And now it's going to unfold what that means. He did not humble himself like his father Josiah did, or like his great-grandfather Hezekiah had done, or like Jehoshaphat had done. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord, of Yahweh, He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to Yahweh, to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly 
unfaithful. Not just plain old stinking unfaithful, they were exceedingly unfaithful. Following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh, the wrath of the Lord, rose against his people until there was no remedy. So the king of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes at the behest of God and sacks Jerusalem decimates it, takes all the furnishings out of the temple of God, sacks and burns it, and takes them off the whatever's left of the, the living people in the south of uh, in Judah, takes them off into captivity. Verse 20, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might might be fulfilled, the Lord, Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. It was also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, it's interesting, a pagan king, says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of his people, may the Lord, may Yahweh his God be with him. Let him go up. What I've read and summarized from the Gospel of Matthew, what I've read and summarized for you from Second Chronicles 36, dear friends, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, whose mercies never come to an end and are new every morning, who does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men happily as Jeremiah reminds us in Lamentations. Oh, teach us. And teach us well this very day. Amen. You may be seated. So, please have your Bibles open to Second Chronicles 36. It's the only way you're going to know what I'm referring to and talking about. And there are, if you're Visiting, there are sermon notes on the back of the worship guide with lots of space for you to write notes, jot down your neighbor's phone number, whatever you need to put in there, but there's lots of space. So I'm going to date myself again. There was a comedy TV show that ran from 1969 to 1992, and it featured two country and western Singers Roy Clark and Buck Owens as their central musicians. Surely some of you have seen this show. Yeah, oh, thank you, thank you. Okay. Yeehaw. And in that comedy show, there were several scenes or several uh, things that would come up every time. So they'd be, they kind of stand out. You remember them. But the one that really sticks out the most to me is this one. It's when that bunch of hillbillies in almost every show, that bunch of hillbillies in their bib overalls, and I used to wear wear bib overalls, so this was like my buds, in their bib overalls with their jugs of moonshine and their old droopy-eyed, droopy-eared dogs, hound dogs on the porch, and their toothless frowns all lying around the front porch of the cabin, and they would start out singing their woeful song. 
Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Thank you, my children. I love that song so much. I have trained Pastor Wes and our office manager, Natalie, that when I start to sing it, walking down the hallways, they now jump in. And then last night, we were playing a board game. What was the name of the board game? Catan. And I lost. And Derek jumped in, and he said, gloom, despair, Maggie. I love that song. So they would sing that song, and then right after that, they would begin to tell this woeful, sad, sorrowful tale of some kind that was a humorous letdown. Because when you thought about what they said, you go, well, why are you guys so depressed? That's stupid. And that's kind of the idea. It was this big letdown. And then they would conclude with their gloomy chorus again. Gloom, despair. Okay, enough of that. Well, my friends, Second Chronicles ends like that minus the humor. It ends like that, gloom, despair, and agony on me with minus the humor. And that's how this whole work closes, chapter 36. So the first point you see there is there's no remedy, and that's really covering verses 1 through 16. And you should have picked up as I was reading that there's a, a theme that keeps coming up for all four of these kings, some of whom are Josiah's descendants, godly Josiah's own son and grandson and, and a brother, I believe it is. And that theme is they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Yahweh. Even the first king, even though it doesn't mention it, it hints it. And if you go to 2 Kings 23-32, it says it specifically, even in his three-month reign, short as it was, he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Every one of them runs head down, full steam ahead, into the dismal conclusion. It's really sad. And so you notice the rhythm here. There's first king reigns three months, the next one 11 years, the next one three months, the next one 11 years. This is covering 22 and a half years, and it's truly gloom, despair, and agony on me. And then Zedekiah, down starting at verse 11, Zedekiah and his short year 11 reign are actually pulled out and put out on display as an illustration of what all four of these kings were like. And if you've ever read Jeremiah, and if you've ever read 2 Kings, you know the backstory to Zedekiah's failures. But several of them are listed right here. So you'll notice, beginning in verse 12, the very first thing he's noticed for is that he did not humble himself before Jeremiah who spoke the word of Yahweh. He did not humble himself. He didn't act like Josiah, who when he heard the word of the Lord, he humbled himself before the Lord. Now Zedekiah will have nothing to do with this God, and he will not humble himself to him. But secondly, it's down in verse 13, and it says that he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as good Americans, we like that kind of stuff. I mean, we're known to have flags back in the days of the War of Independence. We serve no king, don't tread on me. And we hear that, rebelled against the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and we go, yeah! But it's the next part of the line that tells you the bad side of this. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He had made a vow. And the vow meant nothing to him. 
It's like when doing marriage vows and one of the parties has his fingers crossed or her fingers crossed behind their back, so to speak, as they say, so help me God, we're doing this. I'm making these vows. He could have cared less. You couldn't trust this guy. In fact, verse 13 again, it says, He hardened his heart and stiffened his neck against turning to the Lord. He made himself so rock hard from the inside to the outside that he would not turn to the Lord no matter what. He hardened his heart and stiffened his neck against turning to the Lord. And then notice that it's not just him. It's the whole social environment. As we pointed out last week, while godly King Josiah was reigning, he was having resistance all over the place because the people were not on board. And now you find out, oh, the people were not on board with following the Lord. And so you get down to verse 14. The priests, the officers of the priests and the people, it says, were not just unfaithful. It says they were exceedingly unfaithful. Following even the abominations of the nations that... God had judged before He put Israel in that land. And we've talked about this before. That if you're going to act like the ungodly, the unbelieving, then you will receive exactly what they get because God is not a God of partiality. They acted just like them, and so it's part of their exceeding unfaithfulness. In fact, when the word of the Lord came to them, you'll notice down in verse 16, how they, receive, how they respond to the word of the Lord through His prophets. They kept mocking the messengers of God. They kept despising His word. They kept on scoffing at His prophets. What's heartbreaking in many ways as you read all of this is you realize that God's health-giving prescription, God's health-giving prescription is utterly missing in all of this. He, God gave them. Here's the way you can continue to live life and you can love and receive and thrive in, in, in uh, uh, liberty and how you can continue to uh, uh, enjoy my love. And what is it? Second Chronicles 7.14. Dave read it as part of our call to worship. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal the land, heal the kingdom. God's health-giving prescription. It's like going to the doctor, and the doctor's saying, well, what you got is a flu. Well, here, I got Tamiflu. Take it, and it'll shorten the time. And you go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. You go, you're a knucklehead. A whole nation of knuckleheads. No None of God's health-giving prescription is there. They wouldn't even have on His glasses. Second Chronicles 20.20, 20, the 2020 principle, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe His prophets and you will succeed. No, they won't even believe His prophets. They don't even want to wear glasses. You'd call me stupid if I took off my glasses and said, I'll never wear those again because I know better. And if you know me, you know that's bad news. Don't put me behind a wheel without these on. You know what I'm saying? They're not putting on their glasses that God gave them. None of God's health-giving prescription is anywhere in here. But the statement that really should catch your attention is when you get down to verse 15. Is it talks about how God persistently, He sent persistently to them. 
his messengers. Why? Because he had what? Compassion on his people. Y'all tracking with me? Because he had compassion on his people. That statement should grab your attention. God's compassion sets the stage and God's compassion sets the pace. God's compassion sets the stage and God's compassion sets the pace. That's pretty big news. Now, God's compassion will make us scratch our heads, especially when, when, when we want His retribution now against those who are clearly wrong. And by clearly wrong, we usually mean those who have wronged me personally or in some way. And we can't understand God's compassion setting the pace. God's compassion. And yet, my friends, notice again in verse 16, there does finally come a limit. Until there was no remedy. Until there was no remedy. When does that line get crossed? No human being knows. That line is in God's heart and mind. Only He knows for certain. Until there was no remedy. And what you see in verse 15 and 16, and you should see, be seeing and hearing all the way through 2 Chronicles, even clear back into 1 Chronicles, is that God allows us, God allows us ample time to turn. God allows us ample time to turn. God gives us ample clarion calls and alarms that are meant to restore us. God's rigor, our, His restoration. God gives us ample reasons to come back from the far country where we've been, we've been slopping the pigs and, and longing for the, the carbs that, they, that were given to the pigs. Some of you know that story that Jesus told. He gives us ample reasons, ample time, ample cause, ample motivation. And yet, for some there will finally come a time when it will be said, until there was no remedy. And my friends, that will be said about nations. It will be said about our own country someday, until there was no remedy. It will be said about many tribes and nations and tongues and family groups, until there was no remedy. And it will be what is said about many an individual, until... There was no remedy. My friends, I've said before, I've said to you, I've said to my previous church, I've said to my kids, I've said to many others, that the highway to hell is paved with mercy stones, big old mercy stones. And as you've got your head down and you're running full steam ahead on the highway to hell, singing it even, woo! Those mercy stones will stub your toe. And you'll stop and go, oh, that hurts. Yeah. And what's that for? Oh, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe I need to turn around. Yes! Unfortunately, what many people do is they hit that mercy stone and what's the first thing out of their mouth? Now, why'd you do this to me? Right? And they'll take their pained leg, bleeding toe, and they'll jump that mercy stone and right to the next mercy stone. Slam into it. Why'd you do that to me? 
And there's this highway to hell paved with mercy stones because God has compassion. And at some point, you tell there was no remedy. My friend, don't let that be said ever of you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. When we return to the Lord, he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess him as Lord, you will be saved. Don't be that person to tell there was no remedy. Turn. So, God's rigor brought about a much-needed rest. Rest for the land. And that picks up when you get into to verse uh, 17 there, from 17 to 21, where Nebuchadnezzar now then comes as God's judgment upon his people. Nebuchadnezzar comes and he sacks the land and he takes most everybody off. And it says, as you get down to verse 20, it says, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And you go, what's that all about? What do you mean until the land had Sabbath, had rest? What does this needed rest talk about? My friends, if you've been following along, and if you haven't, just go read 2 Chronicles, but if you've been following along, you know all of the bloodshed, the crime, the immorality, the using creation to revolt against the Creator, rejecting God's compassion for those who are in need, all of that exhausts the land. We read before the confession of sin something Jer- the Lord said through Jeremiah to one of the, these kings mentioned here. Let me read you another earlier part and you will hear how this worked. In Jeremiah 22, thus says Yahweh concerning Shalem, the son of Josiah. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with a spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father Josiah, did he not eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is it not this to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Bloodshed, crime, immorality, using creation to revolt against the Creator, rejecting compassion toward those in need, all of those things exhaust the land. And so the land was exhausted. It was exhausted by the wrongful actions of generations upon generations, upon generations, upon generations of abusers. And notice that God steps in to allow the land to rest and to heal. The land had 70 years of rest. God 
oddly enough, God cares about all of His creation. God cares about all of His creation. And so as you read that section there and you see that God actually gives the land Sabbath, you go, hmm, there's something probably behind that that maybe I should pay attention to. If you do, great. Because you should. It's no surprise that this moment in 2 Chronicles 36 is actually a token, a foretaste of something bigger, something grander, something more magnificent. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19, 18 and 19, as he starts talking about our suffering, but not just us suffering. Listen to what he says. Romans 8, beginning at verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now we hear that, we think that's talking about my suffering, and it is. But it's talking also about creation's suffering. That's why he goes on immediately, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God and will enter an eternal Sabbath rest. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Every time you see an earthquake or walk through one, every time there's a tsunami, every time a volcano in Iceland blows up, your mind should say, oh, the earth is still groaning, waiting for its redemption, which is tied to our redemption. That's what Paul says. We'll be freed from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves we have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, and in this we hope. The whole destiny of all creation is tied up with our destiny. When Christ dies to save us, he also dies to save his creation. My friends, if Jesus really is what Scripture says He is, and He is. And if Jesus really did do what Scripture says He did, and He did, then there's going to be a worldwide, global, cosmic, creation-wide Sabbath rest coming that will knock your socks off. And you get a little foretaste right here. He gave the land Sabbath, needed rest. But finally, my friends, the story takes us down a new route. And it's the last two verses, it really picks up at the end of verse 21, but it's those last two verses of chapter 36. Notice how verse 21 and 22 actually go together. Both of them have this phrase, to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah. That's verse 21, verse 22, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And you come to that here at the end of the story, after God's people have been sent into exile, and you realize that one of the things it's telling us is that God will be faithful to Himself. 
even if his people will not be faithful to him. God will be faithful to himself even when his people are not going to be faithful to him to fulfill the word of the Lord. The second thing is you come to the end here. This closing section of 2 Chronicles that ties it to Cyrus, king of Persia, reminds you, it ties 2 Chronicles actually to Daniel. To Daniel who served as a prophet under Nebuchadnezzar all the way to Cyrus. And you go, oh yeah, Daniel speaks into this time frame. And it ties it also into Ezra and Nehemiah. And I tell you that because what it does is one of the things it does is it leaves this gloomy ending, this gloom, despair, and agony on me ending with an open-endedness. Is there more to come? Will there be restoration? Will God's people finally learn their lessons and change their ways? It leaves it open-ended. Anybody remember the story of the prodigal son? There's actually two prodigal sons in there, if you didn't know that. One of them goes astray off in the hinterlands. The other one goes astray right at home in all this self-righteousness. Two prodigal sons. And the story, Jesus leaves the story open-ended at the end where there's no resolution, where the son that's self-righteous is still on the porch, and he doesn't come into the house, and he's not disowned. It just leaves it open because Jesus is leaving the door open with the story to the self-righteous and saying, will you finally come in, please? Will you finally come in? And so 2 Chronicles 36 leaves the door open. Is there going to be more? Will God's people finally learn their lesson? Thirdly, this final section brings around the point that God is engaged with even non-Israelite nations and national leaders. Notice as you look at verse 22, it's very specific. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of Yahweh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Yahweh stirred up Cyrus's heart. It was not Cyrus's gods like Marduk or Ahur Mazda or Mithra who stirred his heart because they're not living gods. It was Yahweh. He didn't. He was not bound to his land. He was not bound to his people's uh, abilities. God, Yahweh, stirred the heart of Cyrus, even when it looks like God lost. His temples decimated. His people are in exile. It looks like God lost. Even when it looks like God lost. Even when it looks like God's people are crushed forever. Even when it looks like God's kingdom is decimated permanently. Even when it looks like God's purpose and plan are overpowered and vanquished and He'll never rise again, so to speak. Yet here He is. Still active. Doesn't even need His people. Did you get that? Doesn't even need His people to accomplish what He's going to do. He is still active he is still orchestrating the course of human events and he stirs up the spirits of this Cyrus and he stirs up the spirits of the Cyruses throughout the ages. And so Yahweh is not helpless. He's not hapless. He's not harmless. He is still, O oh, shock and awe, he is still working all things out to his own glory and to the good of his people and to the success of his world rescue operation. 
Yahweh stirred the spirit of Cyrus. He is still working it all out, even when all of the scientific, historical, political, democratic, or despotic evidence shouts something else. And that's how the story ends. There's some hopefulness here in this gloom, despair, and agony on me ending. But for all of these important thoughts, 2 Chronicles leaves us with one big question. What about God's promise to David? That has run the whole story. God's promise to David. you remember the promise to David? David, you will build, I will build you a dynasty and I will raise up one of your offspring who will sit on your throne forever. And he will reign and he will be my son and I'll be his father. And of this kingdom there will be no end. Well, what about God's promise to his son, to his, to his servant King David? Oh, it can't be. There's no way. There's no earthly way that it can be fulfilled. That's where 2 Chronicles leaves us. No way. It's impossible. Scientifically, historically, politically, democratically, despotically, impossible. Sounds like a guy from Princess Bride, sorry. I mean, even the psalmist in Psalm 89 brings up God's promise to David and then shouts in despair. He brings up the promise when he quotes God, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with David and in my name shall his horn be exalted and I will make him my fir the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. And then the psalmist cries out, but... You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed, against the descendants of David. You have renounced the covenant. All of the scientific, historical, political, democratic, and despotic evidence said and shouted God had renounced His covenant promise to David. You've renounced your covenant with your servant and have defiled His crown in the dust. And 2 Chronicles 36 leaves us hanging with that question. Is the reliable God able to do what the reliable God says? Because if He doesn't fulfill this promise, then every other promise He makes is in question. Can He fulfill this one? It's impossible. Well, if you want to know, come back tonight for the Christmas Eve service. And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1 if you want to know. And that answer is loud and clear. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful that you, even when to all of the evidence, it looks like you are a defeated, defanged, declawed God, you can still stir the spirits of the Cyruses. We thank you that your compassion sets the stage and sets the pace. Because if it was not for your compassion, we would have no hope. We pray for any here who are running along or stumbling along and stubbing their toes on mercy stones. 
But this time, instead of shouting at you and saying, why me? Why'd you do this to me? They would stop and say, wait. You love me so much, you put a mercy stone in front of my self-destructive destiny. I think it's time to turn. May they turn. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.